1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Briefly, I want to teach about the thought of being despised but still used of God. Despised but used of God. 1 Corinthians 1 beginning with verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It wasn't too long ago that Roger Bannister passed away, and of course he was the gentleman that broke the four-minute mile barrier. That had been a track and field obstacle for a long time. At least since 1886, people had wanted to see if they could break through, get up under that four-minute mark. Well, the coaches and a lot of these specialists thought that if it ever occurred, the conditions would have to be perfect. So they... They believed that it would probably have to be about a 68 degree day without wind, sunny, and that it would have to be a dry track and you'd have to have thousands upon thousands of people in the stands cheering to urge the person on, giving them an extra shot of adrenaline. Well, when Roger broke it, it wasn't like that at all. It was a cold day. The track was wet. It was only a few thousand people that were in the stands, but he did do it. Within a month and a half, another person broke through. A year later, in a single race, three people ran under four minutes in the mile, and God only knows the thousands of people that have done it now. Well, what made the difference? Well, he made a decision that he was going to do it. He trained, and he went out of his way to prepare himself accordingly. I think the difference between someone who's extraordinary and someone who's ordinary, there's only a a decision that's between the two different qualities of life. If someone wants to do something outstanding, they have to make a decision to pursue that particular goal. God God said to us through the word that we should do everything as if we're doing it unto the Lord. And that, I believe, is what separates us from other people. In Isaiah's time, everybody couldn't be a prophet. Same thing in Moses' time. Everybody couldn't lead Israel. But the ones who were silversmiths and cobblers and the ones that were masons, all of them were still important. That didn't make them ordinary because they weren't prophets or prophetesses. But if they did their work as though they were doing it unto God, that made them exceptional. And for us that are Christian, that kind of a belief is necessary in all that we do. Now, Paul is writing this letter to some folks that are in Corinth, and of course, that's an area of Grecian influence. And the Greek people gave to later civilizations a number of things of great importance. The Greek achievement, people thought, was a miracle. But these folks gave to us some of the great philosophers of the past, whether you're talking about Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle. And they were admired because of their abilities. But they also gave to the world some of the great orators 
people who knew how through persuasive speech to get into a courtroom and to change the minds of jurors that were listening to a case just by using certain terms, certain words. But then when you read what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1 and then in chapter 2, he makes it very plain that what I'm doing isn't about persuasive speech according to the natural laws of things. What separated Paul from one of the great philosophers of ancient times would have been the fact that he was anointed by the Holy Ghost. And when he ministered the word of God, hearts were seized with conviction. Lives were changed. So important. This isn't a matter of rhetoric and eloquence, but it is a matter of someone being able to explain what they believe with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the the Israelites understood this, and that's why they had rabbis who were good teachers. They were preservers of historical tradition. But have you ever noticed when Jesus went to looking for disciples, he didn't choose any rabbis? He chose fishermen. He chose people that were not at the top of society. He didn't choose anybody that was born of nobility or what some of the English would call of good birth. He chose individuals who might have been somewhere near the bottom of society. They might have been, you know, might have had money and made uh, boatloads of it, but the fisherman vocation was not one that people looked up to as though it was like that of a physician or something. But Jesus chose them and he transformed their lives. And that's why when we consider these men, we can realize God took frail, flawed, infirmed people and he took ordinary men and women and he used them to do extraordinary things but they had to learn how to proclaim the word of God but I like the fact that God took men that other people may not have cared too much about and he did something great with them the question came one time can any good thing come out of Nazareth well obviously something can And Jesus was the prophet of God, the son of God, the Messiah that came and changed the entirety of the world. Thomas said, Lord, how can we know the way? The Lord said, I've been with you all this time and you still don't know. In John chapter 14, there's one question after another that the disciples were asking. And Jesus was trying to explain to them, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. You don't need another sign. You don't need another person. You don't need a glorious vision. If you're walking with me, you've seen the Father. But he took them and he transformed their lives. And that's what all of us in here are. People who've been changed. We are trophies of God's grace. He has taken us and put us in a position where he can boast about us. But all of us may not have been the kind of people that folks thought were going to amount to anything. You may not have been the most popular in your community, in your family. Some people may have held you in disdain, didn't like you at all. But that doesn't change the fact that God still loves you and God can do something great through your life. Don't ever forget that. The the simplest things can become extremely profound if God is the one who's pushing it. Now, let's remember a lady named Ruth. She was an immigrant. Born in Moab, they worshiped different gods. But the Bible says that Elimelech took his family and moved them all the way into Moab. Then Elimelech died. His two sons who had married Moabite girls, Ruth being one of them, both of them died. So the two girls are left with their mother-in-law. 
the mother-in-law encourages both of them, return to your family and to their gods, and, and maybe you'll be able to get married again and start life all over. But I love what Ruth said. Ruth said, absolutely not. Wherever you go, I'm going. Whatever tree you sleep under, that's where I'll be. Wherever you live, I'll abide, and where you die, I'll die, and wherever you bury, you're buried, I'll be buried. He, she had a commitment to her mother-in-law that was so great that she said that even after you die, I'm not going back home. I'm going to stay right here with you wherever they put your body in the ground, and that is where they're going to put me. And this Moabite woman, her life conformed to the covenant culture of the Israelites because she converted and trusted in Jehovah. So here was a lady that the average Israelite wouldn't care anything about. And they certainly would not have liked her at all. The Old Testament scripture talks about a Moabite is not even supposed to come into the temple area or tabernacle area up until several generations. But she was a Moabite lady. This is the one who was in the lineage of King David, who's in the lineage of Christ. So just because someone comes to a country as an immigrant and they may be hated and despised by certain people, that doesn't mean God can't do something great with her. When she came to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, she eventually said, she said, Mama, we can't live here like this. I've got to go out and do something. I've got to get a job. And so sure enough, that's what she did. She walked out the house, headed down the road, passed by several farms, kept on walking, eventually came to a field. And in her heart, she said, I need to see if I can become gainfully employed right here. And that's exactly what happened. Boaz opened up a place for her, showed her grace and favor. But if you go back and look at the story, you can then see that when it came into her heart to go out and go get a job, it had to be God. And when she went down the road going in a certain direction, it had to be God that was ordering her steps. And sometimes when the Lord is superintending your progress, we have a tendency to think God's not thinking about us at all. But the Bible says we go from faith to faith, from glory to glory. And even though God doesn't explain to you everything on the front end, he may explain it to you on the back end because in hindsight you can see what God was doing to orchestrate all these different things. So it may not make sense now, but let God do the things that he wants to do. And though other people may have laughed at you and thought that you'd never amount to anything, God can still do something great. Ruth's sister-in-law very well could have said, you know, you can go all the way back to Bethlehem and starve to death with Naomi if you want to, but I'm going back here and I'm going to go back to our family and back to our gods and start all over again. But look at how different the stories are. She went back to paganism and idolatry. She continued to serve the Lord and Ruth is in the lineage of Christ. And whenever we tell the story of Ruth, we have to talk about a woman that trusted God. Well, let's not forget that in the book of Judges, Chapter 11, we have the story of a man by the name of Jephthah. Now, this is an interesting one. In Judges 11, verse 1, it says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. He was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said to him, Thou shalt not inherit 
in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out to him. Here was a man that was the son of a harlot. His mother was involved with the kind of occupation that most people don't want to have to talk about. His mother may have worked in that part of the village where a lot of good ladies wouldn't venture to. But can you imagine what that must have been like having been raised by someone involved with this particular lifestyle? The embarrassment, the shame, the guilt. Have to watch as you grow up men coming in and out of the hut. One man after another in the community coming in and out of that particular facility. But then to make it even worse, seeing how he never asked to be born anyway, when he got older, his own siblings looked him in the face and said, you're the son of a strange woman and there's no way on this earth we're sharing anything with you. You get out. You know, if it was today, people would say the family bullied him. But all it was, they just despised his mother and they took the Hatred and disdain that they had for the mother transferred it to the son and said, you get out of here. And of course, if you're raised in circumstances like that, if you're not careful, then you'll become a magnet for those kind of people. And then you attract bad people to you. And by expelling him, they put him on a bad course. Vain men, people of trouble. They became his friends. I don't know how you can describe this in a positive way. You can use the word prostitute. You can use the word whore. You can use the word harlot. However, you try to describe it. And our society is good with trying to remove the stigma from titles. And so they don't like to talk about people in the the, the bad industry, the porn and all that. And then they get into adult stuff. But you, you can you can change the verbiage. But you can't change the vocation. As long as the vocation is unclean, the stigma will be attached. How does a man get around this? The Bible said in ancient Israel, whoredom was something that was prohibited. It was banned, essentially. But yet it goes on. Scripture says, thou shalt not prostitute thy daughter. But all across this nation, there are people that have gotten involved with drugs because a mother or father wants just a little bit more. They'll prostitute a child. This goes on in metropolitan cities all across this nation. This man, Jephthah, was thrust up by his own family, fled from his brethren. Some bad people assembled, but he certainly established some kind of reputation for fame. And as a fighter... Because when the Ammonites rose up against the children of Israel, somebody came up with a good idea. Maybe we ought to go and send for our brother Jephthah. They asked him, would you please come back and fight for us? So the people that hate you one day may in turn love you later. And the people who cast you out and say that that you're a worthless, vile person, if you're not careful, you'll watch how God will take their path and it'll go in all of these different directions, but it's always going to lead right back to your doorstep. 
Sometimes when your relationships become fractured in a bad way, God brings them back together in ways that you would never be able to see. Jephthah could have never believed that one day they would come back and ask him not only to fight for them and fight with them, but to be their leader. Son of a harlot. Can God do things like that? Doesn't that seem foolish? To take somebody of that kind of a background and put them in a position of power, nevertheless, This is exactly what God did, because God does those things that confound the wise. We think if a person comes from a very good family, then quite naturally they're going to turn out very well. It doesn't always work out like that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I've seen a lot of kids raised in churches, preachers, kids, and you would have thought with all the advantages they had that everything would have worked out well. didn't always work out well. But then I've seen people that come in off the streets as a derelict and without and within a year and a half, they have more of God than the other people ever will have. Simply because the scripture says those that have been forgiven much loves much. See, but That isn't to say that there are distinct advantages in being raised in church and knowing God. That's just to say we shouldn't take for granted what we have. See, shouldn't take it for granted. But be very grateful to God that he has spared me some of the corruption of this world. You know, Richard Pryor was a a pretty bad, foul-mouthed comedian in uh, his day. And not being raised in a Christian home, I've got a confession to make. I heard many of his old albums. And I wasn't supposed to hear him, I can assure you. But my older brother, as soon as my parents would leave the house, they'd slide down there and throw that record on that record player. And sure enough, they'd have their friends together. They'd listen to that. And I'd be sitting right at the top of the stairs. Didn't always understand what in the world he was talking about. But, but sure enough, was listening. But it was only when I became an adult that I found out that here was a man that was raised by a madam. So when you're raised in a world like that, you really don't see a lot of things that are wrong. Because you don't find things to be wrong. When you're raised in an environment and atmosphere like that, there are very few things in life that you will say are wrong. Because everybody's doing whatever they want to do and whatever seems right to them in their own eyes. This this man, Jephthah Shirley, could be representative of a whole lot of people. I'm trying to remember the name of the famous singer, and maybe to come to me while I'm telling the story, but um, she would sing gospel songs, and her mother, if I'm not mistaken, was assaulted sexually by who knows how many different men. And out of that came her birth. You talk about a bad life, treated bad by friends growing up in the community. People teased her and everything like that because she never knew who her pops was and that kind of a thing. But yet she went on to great fame. She could sing about God. You know, the Bible says when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord takes you up. Sometimes you have to have God to come in and elevate you and do things for you that you're incapable of doing yourself. About 120 years ago, a lady was born in Australia. When she was seven years old, she had a fall and basically became an invalid. 
She could barely move and walk without some kind of assistance. But when she was 12, she had a terrible fall. It messed up her spine, and she ended up in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. She could only move her head and her neck and her arms so far. But as a young lady, she began to think about people that she thought were worse off than her. She began to think about people who couldn't clean their homes, people who were elderly, couldn't feed themselves, people who had other difficulties. And so she got some friends, and talked some ladies into preparing a few little meals and then just taking them around at noontime to some folks there in the community. And here this lady, Doris Taylor, had no idea when she began that that it would become an international phenomenon with the meals on wheels. All because a lady who essentially was a paraplegic had an idea. Now what separated her from other people? A decision to try to do something, to make something happen. And when she passed away and they had that big Methodist funeral for her, I'm sure there were a whole lot of people that had already gone to heaven and had eaten many of those meals, you see. And you, you think about that today, as many people there are around the nation that enjoy those meals may not be the kind of food that you like, but there are a whole lot of hungry people out here just glad there's somebody that knocks on that door and gives them a tray. And it's got a few little items on there to keep them from starving to death and helps keep body and soul together. So one lady's life became a, a light and a candle to other people. But let's think about someone else, a man by the name of Matthew in chapter 9. It says in verse number 9, then Matthew was, he was at the receipt of custom. He was sitting there and Jesus passed by and saw him. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. The Roman Empire had a tax system that they farmed out. Let me explain what that means. In the various provinces of Rome, it was necessary for them to raise the taxes for the individual citizens that had been levied on them by the government. And someone at some point in their history had the idea, why don't we allow people to bid in these diff- different districts and provinces to be the tax collector? So let's say that they were charging every individual 13 or 14 percent taxes or even more. Then three or four people could show up before the magistrate and say, I'd like to bid on that. And I I will give at least 47 percent of all that I raise to the Roman government. Somebody else come along and say, look, I'll get 52 percent. The whole point was to try to make enough money, raise enough money and taxing the people so that you'd be able to take care of your family in a good way, but also make sure Rome got what they wanted, knowing that Rome was going to raise the taxes just about every year. Matthew was one of the ones that received the bid. So that means he had a fairly good lifestyle. But he's sitting there. As Jesus passes by, and like I would imagine most ancient tax collectors would have been sitting there by himself, if wasn't nobody paying taxes. Because the rabbis considered the tax collector to be an agent of Rome. And if you were Jewish and worked for Rome, you were a traitor to your own country. And they treated them as such. 
Read the stories of Jesus going into the homes of the, the different publicans and how the people said, how dare this man go into the home of a sinner? That's how they were treated. But Matthew, he's sitting there and Jesus comes by and he says, follow me. And, and then suddenly Matthew gets up and leaves. Now, here's a man, as I said, community wise, nobody would have really liked him. They would have been as happy to see him as you would have been to see an, an IRS man show up at your door. And it's tax time now for us. And the, the, the majority of us in here, I guarantee you, we don't look forward to taxes unless you're always getting something back. But if, if, but if you're like me, pinching pennies, it seems like you always owe. And when you always owe, you're not interested in seeing these people. So they're not your favorite. Even though I'm sure there are numbers of people who work for the Internal Revenue Service that are Christian, and go to church, love the Lord, and preach. But I think when Matthew heard the words, follow me, I think they resonated in him so strongly that he didn't hear anything else. I just want to follow Christ. That's what he did. He got up and walked away from that particular vocation. Well, I mean, there was nothing in Scripture that says you couldn't do that and still serve God any more than somebody could serve in the military. And serve God. Although there are some vocations that will keep you from really glorifying God in the manner that you want to. And sometimes when you hear God speak to you and he's saying, follow me, then you turn and walk away from certain things. He walked away and came into full time ministry. Wife and I one time was preaching in a town here in Nebraska. And then I uh, went out one evening to get some barbecue. The only place to serve the barbecue was a saloon slash barbecue joint but I wanted this barbecue so I went in and I sat down at the little area where the lady taking the orders and stuff like that which was at the bar and all these other guys are there so they're sitting there drinking their beer and everything she comes she asked me what I want and I said well I you know barbecue sandwich and so on and so forth then afterwards I told her I said I'm here preaching in town I'd love for you to come out to the meeting. She said, well, where are you preaching at? So I told her, invited her to come to church. Then I left. Well, the meetings went on Saturday. I think we had some meetings on that Sunday. And then Sunday morning, I ministered the word. Some people giving their hearts to the Lord. I could see God was dealing with individuals. And I said, if you want to give your heart to the Lord, just raise your hand. I want you to come on down here. We're going to pray with you. Well, several people came down, but one young lady was there with a little uh, kid, and I could see the kid was kind of happy to be uh, there with Mama. And afterwards, they were talking to me after we'd gone through all of this and praying with them and talking with them about Jesus. The lady said to me, you don't even know who I am, do you? I said, no, I don't. She said, I'm the lady that you were talking to the other night at, at the place. Well, you know, at the place, she just had on a pair of jeans, a little T-shirt, and, you know, hair and a, and a ponytail, but now... Got a dress on, looking real good and all that kind of a thing. And and so I just didn't recognize her at all, but I knew she was crying the whole time I was preaching. And and when it was all over, uh, she'd given her heart to the Lord and told me, you know, with this little girl I got, I've got to find something else I can do. I never told her to walk away from the bar. But I can tell you one thing, all the years we've been out here, I've led a whole lot of bartenders to Christ. I have. My wife can tell you. 
There have been a whole lot of people that at one time or another were tending bar and they started listening to us preach and slowly but surely they just moved right on out of that. Never had to say anything, but they heard God speaking to their hearts and follow me. See, follow me. There are some times in life when God is able to grab hold to a person and he can take someone who even has an occupation that is not loved by all and he can still promote him and do something great. When we talk about the 12 disciples, we have to talk about Matthew because God did something great with him. So don't ever forget that. Well, having, having said that, then God offers to people who come from pretty bad backgrounds. He offers them several things. He offers them friendship. The Bible says he that has a friend has somebody sticks closer than a brother. There's some people in society that you probably wouldn't want to shake hands with, probably wouldn't want to have dinner with, and you probably would not want to spend time with, have your spouse around them, have your kids around them. But those are the people that God wants to have a relationship with. Because if he can become a friend to them, he can change them. See? He, 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 can, he can change them. But then at the same time, once he, he gets that relationship with them, then he can lead them to salvation and they can come to know him and then that moves us into fellowship. You know, the beautiful thing about a church, a church congregation consists of a whole lot of people that have been forgiven of their sins. That's what it is. That's what that's why our fellowship is so sweet. We all get together with the same understanding that I was a sinner, just like anybody else that we read about in this book. And I needed the same grace of God to forgive me. And there's no sense in me turning my nose up at you and no sense in you looking down at me because all of us have needed the blood of Jesus Christ and will need it before the evening is over. See? Fellowship. But God encourages that. And the more we interact with other saints that have similar testimonies or different testimonies, we're constantly reminded by the fact that the blood of the Lord is still working. The grace of God is still working. And as long as he's saving people, he's filling them. As long as he's filling people, he's healing them. As long as he's healing people, he's doing miraculous things and comforting hearts. So God wants us to understand that the friendship aspect is important, that the fellowship aspect is important, to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, so much the more as we see the day approaching, but then also to know that if we're going to have fellowship with one another and be friends with him, we still have to move to the point where we understand he's not just a friend, he's Lord. He's not just your big brother. He's not a homeboy, a homegirl that we talk to in an irreverent manner. We talk to God like he's holy. He's different. And he expects us to approach him boldly, but he expects us to come to him with a reverence in our heart. If God says turn left, you turn left. He says turn right, you turn right. When God spoke to Matthew and said, follow me, he didn't want to hear Matthew say anything about, it's hard for me to walk away from all this money to follow you, Christ. Too difficult to do that. This man was making good money for the Roman Empire, but at the same time, his house was empty. His heart was empty. There are a lot of people in this world that are like that. You can be poor and have an empty heart. You can be rich and have an empty heart. God doesn't have a problem with wealth. He enriched a whole lot of people in the scripture. And there's nothing in the Bible that ever says that having abundance and prosperity is a bad thing. 
It very simply says, if you don't have the character to deal with it, then it becomes a weight in your life that hinders you from being able to follow God. And that's why when the Lord talked to that one man and he came and he said, look, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord said, keep such and such commandment, do this and do that. That man was rich. He said, I've done all of that since I was a little kid. The Lord said, sell all that you have and give to the poor. The Bible says that man turned and walked away from Jesus and he was sorrowful. You know why? It, it, it wasn't that the, the, the wealth and the riches couldn't let him go. He couldn't let it go. See? He couldn't let it go. And he chose that over God. Jesus said, follow me. But he chose all of that. And there are people in this world that are yet like that. But if Jesus is going to be your Lord, you have to be willing to cut ties. To say goodbye to friends. If God tells you to go here. Where God tells you to go there. Because God can always give you new friends. But you can't get a new God. You can't get a new God. And then the last thing I'd say to you. Is that God wants our worship. All of these people that he does wonderful things for. In scripture. Who's come from some very difficult backgrounds. He wants worship. You, You can't give that to a friend. You can't give that to anybody else. Worship is the one thing that God demands as well as desires. And if you ever want to see God get jealous, give his worship to something else. Yeah. If you ever want to get crossways with God and, and have God unhappy with you, and you give too much time, too much energy, too much money to something that's not him. See, And then you, you'll find yourself... In trouble. And in this world in which we presently live, we can see that in our culture, our culture doesn't promote God, but it does promote ungodly things. And so everything becomes a choice. When I talk to somebody and they say to me, well, you know, uh, I, I, I would like to go to church a little bit more, but, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out like that because I'm busy and things come up in the family and I have other things going on. But then you, you talk to that same person in another town and you go on in that conversation. They'll tell you for 20 years they've been a season ticket holder. Hadn't missed a game. They'll tell you what seat they sit in and they never miss. They say it could snow. We're there right there on the 50 yard line. You better believe it. I've got my kids right there. But then if it's raining too hard or grandma comes to town, they say, well, we, we can't come to church now because grandma's here. Well, you better tell grandma you're going to church and if grandma's going to stay home. Tell her she can stay home. Just have lunch ready when we get back. See? But but if, if, if you're going to serve God, put him first. See? Put him first. He deserves our worship. And if you think about it, the Lord's Day primarily is the day that most people worship. That's only one day out of the week. God isn't asking for much. But then when we get together uh, for midweek service on, on Tuesday night and we get into the scripture, that's still another opportunity for us to fellowship one more time. And you consider those couple of hours or two and a half, three hours, whatever it is that we're all fellowship and having a good time. That is very little considering the amount of time that you have to give to so many other things. And when other people look down at you and say you're too much of a fanatic for God, you just let them know you're not a fanatic enough for the king. There's more that you can do. And your friends and neighbors that you grew up with, if they didn't care anything about you and, and they didn't like you and think you were going to amount to nothing, 
You don't have to believe that stuff. You can see what God's doing now. I had a neighbor like that one time. Man got mad at me when I was, I think I might have been eight or nine years old or something like that. And his kid was three or four years behind me. And I, I don't know if he's angry with my brothers or something, but he just yelled at me one time and cussed and said I wasn't going to be this and I wasn't going to be that. I didn't pay atten- attention to anything that he said. I remembered it, but I, I, I never did allow my life to be formed around what he said. But I do know that we can live in such a way that we affect people. We had somebody died one time and wasn't, wasn't a member of our church, but uh, passed away. And so I, I went over to this, this funeral one time, just kind of stick my head in for somebody and, and got in there. I, I don't know that there were, including the mortician and me, five people, five people at the funeral. Here's somebody nearly 50 years of age and died. There's five or six people in that place. And I, I thought maybe we're going to have to ask Tiff to be a pallbearer. You know, there's just so few people there. And I couldn't help but think, how, how in the world do you live almost five decades and you can't affect enough people to get more than ten or a dozen or so to come out to grieve when you die? And And then... I thought to myself, I'm, I'm almost certain with, with the way I live, the way I preach, there'd be more people than that to show up just to make sure I'm dead. Yeah. So I, I want to see him. I want to know that he's there. But do you, you see my point? You, you can go your whole life and not touch anybody if you're not careful. And that devil would love to see that happen. Come on, let's stand. God has called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. Your eyes, your ears, your voice, your legs, your arms all belong to God. You've been bought with a price, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And every opportunity that you have, you can be a witness for the King. Don't be ashamed or afraid of people yelling at you or people saying, I don't want to hear that. They may not want to hear it that day, but they may want to hear it on Tuesday. Somebody gets upset when you're trying to share your faith with them, then I can promise you, give it time. Somebody will be looking for you. You remember the story of Daniel. They couldn't stand him. Man had an excellent spirit, but they treated him like they hated him. Then you know the story. They didn't invite that man to all of their parties. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. Too much conviction when he came around. When that man's hand appeared to the king, wrote those words on that wall. And all of a sudden, that king wasn't thinking about any of them party goers that were there with him. He wanted to know, where is the man of God that can interpret this for me? They may not invite you to all their parties. They may not invite you to all their social gatherings. But when the fingers of a man's hand appear, they will be calling you for prayer. Yeah, they will be calling you. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening because your name is strong. It's a refuge. And Lord, we're happy that we've got you on our side, because if you're for us, who can be against us? Lord, when you look down here in this room tonight, you see a lot of different testimonies. There are people here, oh God, that you scooped out of difficult places. Folks that folks 
Folks that thought these people would never be anything more than a lump of coal. But God, you've given value to them as you have cleansed them by the blood. Thank you for the word that you placed in all of our mouths. Oh God, why, Lord, why did you reach down into the gutter of Cleveland, Ohio, to find a little kid like me, God, and call me into the ministry? Why, oh God, did you bring the gospel to the homes of people that are in here tonight when we very well could have ended up as lost as people around the world that have never even heard your name. But God, we can say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and caring for us this much that you have used us and are using us and will use us in these last days. So God, we honor you. We thank you. And praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, 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 folks. Praise God. Folks, be 